Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Josh, if you'll come up, I'll pray with you. Don't we, Father, Lord, again, we come to you. I'm grateful um, to be called by you, grateful um, to be saved through Jesus Christ, um, and grateful to be gathered to worship you. I pray for my brother Josh this morning um, as he speaks um, your words to us and, and uh, helps build us up um, to just greater appreciation of your heart. Be with him. Let, his, let your spirit um, be felt by him and, and, and be felt by us as we um, just celebrate, learn, and grow more deeply in who you are. We love you. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I um, have a question for you before we get going here. Who in here is a homeowner or has ever been a homeowner? Okay. Okay. Quite a few people. Um, if, you, if you have owned a home or currently own a home, I think you will track with me on this. Um, but generally, there's this kind of ongoing project list of things that just seem to never get done. Um, and it seems like it's always growing, actually, uh, of things that need to happen, right? Like yard work, electrical outlets that aren't quite functioning correctly, um, exhaust fans in bathrooms, uh, squeaky garage doors that need WD-40, or the dreaded new HVAC system that has completely gone out. That's been my favorite project so far. Or maybe, if, you're not, if you don't have the projects that need to be done, maybe you're more of the dreamer of the things, you have a list of projects that you want to do, right? You want to create some things or make some things happen in your house. And so you have big plans. You want to repaint a room, totally new color, maybe add some color, right? You want to add hardwood floors, some of you ladies, right? I uh, don't have to keep cleaning up the carpet. Or maybe you want to add carpet because you like having soft and warm uh, environment when you step in off the bed in the morning. Uh, maybe you want to put out some energy-efficient windows, right? Or you got big, big plans like a gazebo in the backyard or a big addition, right? I don't dream that big because uh, mainly for one reason, um, a little too much money or a little too much time or you struggle to get that other project list done because you're like me and you fumble through the projects and you have to like YouTube everything because you're not actually sure how to do anything. I think at this point my father-in-law is pretty sick of me calling him to come fix the things that I tried to fix that I didn't fix right, all right? Harmony and I, though, we've been watching this, uh, this new show. Well, for us, it's new. It's been around for about four years uh, called Fixer Upper. Anybody? Anybody get this? Okay. Okay, the basic premise is this, there's this husband. He's super handy. He can fix anything. He can build anything. He can do anything. Um, and then there's this wife and, that he has, and she's, like, incredibly good designer, and so she can make everything beautiful. And what they do as a duo is they will meet up with families or people who are buying their first homes, and they'll say, we've got this much money. This is our budget, and we want to have this stuff. We want this many rooms, bedrooms, bathrooms, you know, pool, yard, whatever. And, and they try to take them to three different houses, and usually the first house is like some house that like is ready to move into with just a few minor fixes, but it doesn't quite meet all of their parameters. And then the next two houses are actual fixer-uppers, right? And they actually need a legitimate amount of work, and they look pretty bad, but they could 
at the end, become everything they want it to be. And so what you see is these, this, this husband, Chip, and his wife, Joanna, and they're trying to take people from house to house, and they're showing them and, and these sometimes very dilapidated homes, really, really bad homes. And they're like, just picture with me. Just envision. And if this wall wasn't here and that sink wasn't there, and, you know, and they're trying to envision what it could be. And my favorite part of the show is watching people's facial expressions when they walk into a really jacked-up house, and they're like, you know, and they're asking, what do you think of this one? <sighs> Ugly, uh, first word that comes to mind. You know, and like, word association, gross. I mean, you know, and so you're trying to picture, how do you take that and make it the house of our dreams that we want to live in with our family for years, right? And so Chip and Joanna eventually kind of, you know, this is the way the show works, is they eventually kind of put on these people, you got one house to pick, which one's it going to be? And inevitably, it's never the one that needs just a little bit of work that wouldn't fit the bill, it, they pick one of these ones that are really in need of a lot of work. And um, I think it's great that at the end of the show, you see the, these, these two people or the single person, they come up and they got their eyes blindfolded and they're like, ready to see your house? And they look and it's like, it's beyond their dreams. It's beyond their imagination. Like they couldn't have even envisioned, even when they were walking through and she's telling them, I can do all this and all this, they couldn't see it. They just couldn't imagine it. And they walk in and at the end of the, every show, like without fail, the people are sitting down, you know, and the camera crew's interviewing them and like, I, I just couldn't have imagined. I couldn't have pictured, like they exceeded my expectations. They exceeded what I ever thought it could be. And the people are crying, you know, it's very emotional. I start to cry sometimes, right? And I love it. But that's what happens. Their expectations are blown out of the water. The passage we're looking at today describes God as being able to do far more than we think or imagine. That he can do anything beyond what we could think or ask. But I think too often, most of us look at our situations much like the dilapidated houses that these folks walk through, and they're like, there's no way. There's just no way. We go from room to room, metaphorically, right, picking out all of the problems, um, commenting on all of the things that need to be changed, on, on all the things that are not good enough, that need updating or fixing. We struggle to think it can actually become something beautiful. We struggle to believe that God is working. So this morning, um, as we dive into this passage, and th these two verses that really are on the end of a, a prayer, and they're really meant to be just a praise, or what we would call a doxology, a giving of glory to God, I want you to hear something, and I want you to have one idea in mind, is that the power of God lives in us. The power of God to bring about change actually lives in us. We have been empowered by the Spirit of God. And he does produce beautiful change. I want to pray this morning um, and, and before we get more deep into our passage. But what I'm going to do, just to give you an idea, is we're going to start, we're going to look right at the passage, the two verses. I'm going to explain them to you. I'm going to get you very familiar with them. Then we're going to go and we're going to fly over the first three chapters that we've already studied um, very quickly. And then we're going to come back to those two verses because I think they don't make as much sense unless you keep the first three chapters in context. So let's do that, let's pray, and then we'll understand what God's been doing. 
Gracious God, we need your um, guidance this morning. We need you to open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to understand the depth of your word, um, the meaning of it. Um, but we also want to be captured by it. We want to be, have our affections um, lifted this morning as we understand more deeply the truth as it sinks in. We want to be captivated by the gospel. And God, this morning, I know we have not all walked in here captivated by the gospel. So drive us to believe, to have a vision that you are working and you um, will not stop working for our good and for your glory. We pray that in your name this morning. Amen. All right, well, let me, let me take you right to verse 20. This is our first two, verse 20 and 21 are our verses this morning. But verse 20 says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. So I'm going to stop right there at that verse, and I'm just going to explain a few things. I'm going to break down each phrase real quick. So, now to him. Paul is in essence saying that now, at this moment, in light of all that I've said in the first three chapters of this letter, to God, okay? To God implies Paul's about to say something to us about, about God, about who he is. And before he does, before he says to God, what he wants to say to God He's actually going to describe something about God. And so he says this. He says, him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. In other words, him, the him that he's describing to, the him that he's about to say something about, that him is able to do things. He's able, powerful, abundantly so. We don't think, um, you know, when we think about going to the store, you know, and we exchange something, like we give cash and we get something at the register, we get exactly what we expected. We don't expect to give a little and get way more than we expected. In this case, Paul is saying that he's so powerful, God is so powerful, that he is more abundantly able than to do what? Anything we ask or think. Even what we could dream about, God can do more. Broken relationships, difficult situations, family struggles, whatever. He can work beyond all of that. He's able to do way more than we can even ask him or think about asking him. God's capability exceeds our expectations. I struggle sometimes to even exceed um, my own expectations, right? I'm regularly letting myself down, and we all let each other down, right? So how does God do that? How does he exceed our expectations? He tells us. How does he exceed all that we ask or imagine? According to the power at work within us. What is that power within us? This is a very important question. Okay? Is it us? No. Is it the power of positive thinking within us? No. Is it some deep goodness in each of us? I hear that all the time. That he's really just a good person. Is that the deep goodness in all of us? No. Some of you work at the prison, and you know that's not the case. Some of you know your reactions to the people you work with. Not the case. It's not a deep goodness in us. What, so what is God tapping into that allows him to have this ability to work far beyond our thoughts and imaginations and questions and asks? We're going to look into it a little deeper, but just to give you a very quick answer, verse 16 tells us it's God's spirit that lives in us. Okay? 
So basically, if I could reword verse 20 in, in kind of a paraphrase, I would say this. Now to God, who is able to do more than we ask and, and even more than we can think to do, he's able to do it by the power of his spirit that lives in us. So with that backdrop, he writes verse 21. To him, to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To that powerful God who is working by his power that lives in us, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. We could stop right there, right? We could end the sermon. We could go home and we'd be like, praise God. Right? We're going to just continue in song, and, and, and we're going to pass out some bumper stickers that says God can do all things or something like that, maybe some coffee mugs, and we would just call a day. Right? That's a real sweet idea. And maybe, maybe we'd go home, and um, you know, we, we could uh, just try to, try to appreciate that truth, on, muster up kind of this, this faith that, that says, you know, but God's more powerful. Oh, hit, hit my, my husband lost his job, but God's more powerful. He can work all things, you know. Uh, um, I got in a big fight with my husband. God's more powerful. I mean, we could just try to, like, think on that truth as just kind of a pithy catchphrase. But I don't think we would grasp fully what Paul's trying to get at unless we understand everything he said in the first three chapters. So at this point, what I want to do is I want to do a flyby. And you're like, if we can go through three chapters in 20 minutes, then how come we've taken a year to go through Ephesians? But we're going to do a flyby of the first three chapters. And I think it will give us a greater appreciation of these two verses. Okay, so verse, or I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. This is Paul, again, he's writing this letter to the Ephesians, and he says, In him, in Christ, we, the church, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, what happened? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Exchange, belief, Holy Spirit. We believe we get the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in other words, the two major things I want you to see in this first section, and you can leave that up there just um, for me, Tony, The two major things I want you to see first, that God has a purpose. He's had a purpose from eternity past. It says he predestined us according to his purpose, okay? So that purpose is important. We're going to hold on. We're going to put that on the shelf for a minute, but I want you to see that. He has a purpose. The second thing I want you to see essential in this passage is that we were given something when we first believed in Christ, and that was the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is the power that works within us. Okay, so we're going to connect all these dots as we go, but I'm going to keep moving forward here. God has a purpose, and his Holy Spirit has been given to us. Why is that important? Here is why. Verses 15 to 23. For this reason, this is the reason, it's important. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. We already have the Spirit, but he wants the Spirit to give us wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He's wanting the Spirit of God to continually, for the rest of our lives, until we acquire heaven and relationship with God in his presence, 
He wants us to grow in things. And verse 19, specifically, he wants us to grow in what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, in our understanding of that, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I'm reading these long sections, these long excerpts for a reason. Each word, each sentence is important. But just to summarize, Paul is saying here that he prays for the church. And he prays that they grow in wisdom in the knowledge of God. And that happens as the Spirit gives them more knowledge and wisdom, the one that was given to us at the moment we believed. But very specifically, in verses 19 and 20, Paul's saying that he prays that they would grow in their understanding of the immeasurable, you understand, immeasurable, unable to measure, immeasurable greatness of God's power. He wants them to understand it. It's immeasurable, which kind of makes it seem like it's incomprehensible, but he wants them to comprehend it more and more. He wants them to understand it more and more. What does he want them to first understand about God's power? The same power that lives in us. Well, first of all, it's the same power that raised Jesus from death to life. Now, have you ever seen that kind of power? I have not, personally. Um, I've seen amazing things. I've seen people come back from very sick, uh, near-death what we would consider, I mean, we would expect them to die situations. Um, we've seen that in our, in our campus in Columbia. Um, we've seen amazing things. God healing people um, that, that had major heart conditions. And a lot of that stuff we would still attribute to, of course, the working of God, but we would also kind of attribute to the medical field, you know, the way we do things like that. And, and we've seen amazing things, but, but Im- immeasurable power? Immeasurable we, we have this ability to measure things like, you know, wattage and horsepower and power in general that we can create. But this is another level. This is a level uh, so impressive that we cannot measure it. It's beyond any power we've ever seen. We don't have the tools. We don't have the equipment to, to quantify it. That same power of God that raised a dead man and brought him to life is the same power that lives in you and I. That's weird. And I mean that reverently. That's weird. We don't think about that. I mean, I do not go through my day walking around thinking that the power of God can help me or work in me the same way I I think about it in regards to Jesus. I just can't, I don't consider it that way sometimes. I don't consider that Jesus is more powerful, that his spirit is more powerful than anything I'm experiencing in life. Because when I face a trial, I tend to think that that experience is more powerful, or that individual is more powerful, right? Let's keep moving in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Paul is, is in that section describing um, some very specific things about God's power. But very firstly, in verses 1 and 2, he says something about us. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
you were following the course of this world, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So what, what's Paul saying here? He says there are other powers in this world. Where we're talking about the immeasurable power of, of God's spirit, but there's other powers in this world, namely Satan, the enemy. And he, he has power in this world. It's a lesser power, and we used to follow that power. But in verses 8 and 9, he says something else. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Saved from what? Saved from the power of Satan. And this is not your doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of your works so that no one can boast. The same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power of God that rescues us from Satan's power his lesser power, his temporary power. So do you you see what's happening? Do you see the case Paul's building? In the first chapter and a half, he's saying, he's he's praying that we would comprehend more of Christ's power, the Spirit's power. He wants us to understand it more deeply. But then he explains it. He explains what how that power raised Jesus from death. Then he explains it further and says, it's the same power that raised our souls from spiritual death to free us from slavery to Satan. Why does Paul so deeply, this is a normal question, why would he want us to comprehend this power so much? Because it has implications in the way we live. We see in here by the power of God that God reconciles sinners back to him. So in a sense, we can also say that there's no sinner who sins so extravagantly that the immeasurable power of God could not work in them. Which means we have hope for the worst of sinners. We see God's power in this past, in this uh, book of Ephesians, we see it bringing Jew and Gentile, people who racially were divided, who hated one another, unifying them as one body, one church which means God can work in our city in the racism we experience in this city. God destroys the power of Satan's rule. We see in this passage, in chapter 3, Paul go on to talk about his own scenario. And he says this, or we know this about Paul, is that he was a hostile terrorist towards Christians. He terrorized them, murdered, uh, imprisoned, beaten. Okay, And we see the power of God changing Paul's heart and making him the most incredible missionary of all time. Look at chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Paul writes this of himself, of his own ministry. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his what? You can talk to me. Of his what? Power. Yeah, that's essential. To me... Though I am very, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. He's laying out a case. He's saying God is powerful enough, his spirit is powerful enough to raise a man who's been dead for three days. Three days. Buried. He's done. Raised him. To save sinners who were following Satan, blind and spiritually dead because of their sin, saves them. Takes the terrorist, the worst of all sinners that you could possibly imagine, someone who absolutely hates Christianity, flips them on a dime and says, nope, now you're going to be the greatest missionary of all time. Do you see the history of God's power in this 
first three chapters. Paul finishes this, these first three chapters by telling us that he is now proclaiming the gospel by the power of Christ, the power of Christ's spirit, and it's part of God's redemptive plan. And so as we ease back into chapter 3 here, I just want to kind of land this plane as we come back into verses 20 and 21, and I want to just jump into verse 11 real quickly and see one thing here. Paul says, this was according, this whole, this whole scenario where, where I'm preaching the gospel now to, to everyone after having been a terrorist, that whole situation, that was according, he says, to the eternal purpose of that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, that God has realized, that God has brought to bear. And so with this great backdrop, with this immeasurably powerful spirit of God working to raise dead men, raise new souls, free lost people from evil power, Paul prays, he starts this prayer in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, I'm praying for all of you, is what he's saying. For every family in heaven and on earth, that verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Oh, okay. Are you seeing it? He's just explained the power of God. And he's now asking God to strengthen us in our inner beings by that same power. Verse 17, so that, for the purpose of, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This isn't to say, let me just stop here and say, this isn't to say that you would be saved again or that you would have faith in Jesus because you lost your faith in Jesus. No, it's to deepen it, okay? Let me just make that clear. He's deepening what's already begun. You began a faith in Jesus. He says this in chapter 1. You were given the Spirit. Now I'm praying that the Spirit will deepen that faith. And he uses that kind of language in the second half of verse 17, that you be rooted, right? I'm out, I'm out in my yard a lot right now um, because it's not snowy and it's not cold, and I hate the cold, so I can get out there in this time of year. And I'm like, I'm, we're trying to get out the weeds, you know, and lay down some mulch. And what really drives me nuts is when I think that I'm just going to go pick out some weeds and they go deeper and deeper and I pull this string and it's like this vine that has gone like 15 feet and it ticks me off because I'm like ah, I just want you to die and I want to be able to spray things on you that never make you come back okay in a reverse way in a good way God wants us to understand something that's rooted that is grounded in something he wants us to understand the love of God that you that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, this will happen. You may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's saying some things here. He's saying God's love is incomprehensible, but the more we comprehend it, the more we understand it, the more we can live it out together in community as a church family. It is by God's Spirit that we are able to comprehend it more. So we, he's praying to the Spirit to enlighten us, to, to, to help us comprehend God's love. 
All right, so we just flew over these three chapters, and, and I left out one small detail about the context that I want to bring to light now. Who's writing this letter again? You can talk to me. Paul. Where is he writing it from? Prison. So do you understand that significance? What's going on here? Paul, while in the midst of being in, pro in prison for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, has every natural human reason to be mad at God. I'm, I'm serving you and you throw me in prison. You let me be put in prison, right? He easily could be asking questions like that, right? You and I would. Why would God allow this to happen if he's so powerful, right? We ask questions like that when we go through tragedy, and Paul's not doing that. He's not complaining. He's not turning his back on God. So why? Instead, he's actually praying that the Ephesians would understand they've been empowered by God's Spirit, and they would know God's purpose. See, Paul has this understanding while he's suffering, while he's in prison, specifically for preaching the gospel, that God has, he's not only powerful, but he has a purpose. And I think those two things need to be married together. If we understand God's powerful, but we don't think about his purpose, we're just going to be kind of like, why are you letting us down? Why aren't you for us? But if we think God has a, has a purpose and we don't think about his power, then we're going to think he's a really well-intended guy, but he can't do much. But if we can live in the middle of two realities, that God is both powerful and he has a purpose, then that means our suffering has purpose. And so Paul's there in prison knowing that his God could break him out in an instant. And in another passage of scripture, he is in prison and he's broken out in an instant. But in this case, he's in prison and he's trusting God has a purpose, a good purpose in the midst of it. He's telling the Ephesians to also believe that because they, would, they love Paul. They could be thinking the same thing, right? They could, why is God letting them be, you know, he, he's trying to serve God. Why is he letting him be in prison? Why doesn't he break him out? He's trying to tell them some things. He's trying to encourage them with some truth that God has a purpose. It's a good purpose, and he has power, and that power lives in you. And with all of that said, now I'm going to come to my points. So this is the first point I want to make. God's power will not fail, like ever. There's no backup generator. There's nothing. Like he's, he's just endless power that does not fail. I, I, I put as evidence for you this, what we've already read, is that God's power has been demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus, a dead man brought to life. He's not the only person that he brought back to life. He brought back Lazarus um, and, and others. He healed sick. He healed lepers. He healed the blind. He is powerful. It's immeasurable. It's beyond anything we can ask or comprehend. It is sufficient to save sinners, any sinner, from the power of Satan, from the power of ongoing struggle with sin. And so Paul has a strong sense deep within him that God's power is not going to fail him. He has seen it in his own life, and it will not fail him. Even though he's in his context of prison right now, it's not going to fail him. It took him 
an, an, an angry terroristic murderer and made him a follower of Christ. He does not doubt God's power, and neither should we. Second thing I want you to see is God's purposes are good. Now, Paul trusts God's purposes are good um, because he looks back on his own life, and he sees that, and he tells us that. He sees it in regards to Jews and Gentiles being made into one community, and he sees it in his own life. And he can also keep it in context of all human history where God has predestined everything that's happened. And he says, e- even, even me being in prison, that's all part of God's plan. That's all p- part of his purpose. God's purposes are good. And he wants the Ephesians to trust in God's power and purpose as well. So Paul goes on, and, and he prays that God would deepen the Ephesians' understanding of something, of God's love. And so that they could live it out. And so now I want to come back to verses 20 and 21. With that in mind, with the fact that God's power will not fail, that his purposes are good, I want to come back now to verses 20 and 21, where Paul writes, Now to him to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. According to the power of his spirit, right, that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The third thing I want you to see is that God alone deserves glory. There's none, right? There's nobody in our lives. There's not one person ever in human history, not a president, not a family member, not a, not a spouse, uh, you know, no one who deserves the glory that God deserves because no one has the power and the good purposes that God has. He deserves glory. Notice what he says. I think this is interesting. It's according to the power at work within who? You? No, he uses a plural pronoun. He says us. He's talking to the church. There's a sense where God works in us individually, but Paul's speaking to the church. He says the power is at work. God's spirit is working within us. God deserves glory because he is working in his people. He's bringing Jew and Gentile together. In our context, he's bringing black and white together, right? In our city, or, or Hispanic, or, or um, Indian, or whatever, Asians, anybody. Young, old, rich, poor, whatever. So we give God glory because he's bringing people together and to himself. But he also says, not in the church is God glorified, but in Christ Jesus. So those are two aspects, right? He's glorified in the church. He's glorified in Christ Jesus. Why do we praise him because of Christ Jesus? Because without Christ, nothing happens. There is no salvation. There is no unity between the, <clears throat> the races. There's nothing that is reconciled. 
So we praise him in the church, but we praise him in Christ as well. It is because of Christ that we're freed from sin, we're freed from death, from the power of the enemy. We're given a new family and a new kingdom, and we have a new hope. That does not happen apart from the power of God, so we praise God. We give him glory because he's making all of those things happen. I, uh, I'll run into people sometimes who've been at cars for a long time or a short time and, and uh, either here or in Columbia. And, and one of the encouraging things that I, it is a refrain that I've, I hear often is, I've not found a community like this. And so one of the things that is, it's cool to hear that. And immediately I could say, well, that's because of, you know, uh, our, our lead pastor, Kevin, you know, he's really worked hard, um, you know, it, to, to just have, it, build an authentic culture and a community that really serves each other and loves, you, you know, you know, we're grateful for Kevin. And, and then, you know, you, maybe you hear it and you think, you, here in the Jeff City campus, and you're like, oh, yeah, Pastor Josh, he's working hard to try to build that culture. That, none of that happens apart from Christ. None of it. So, like, what? I mean, yes, I'm grateful for Kevin, and I'm sure some of you are grateful for me, but it's not to our glory. Like, we can actually, there's no, we're not singing any songs to Pastor Kevin, right? There's no pastor worship here. It's just, it's God we praise because God brings about the change that's both in our own hearts to free us from sin and the power of Satan, but also to bring us into community and into a family of faith. He's the one changing the direction of our culture and changing the direction of our lives. So we praise him. He's been doing this for generations. This isn't new 2016 stuff. This is like thousands of years old, right? And the fourth thing I want you to see is this, is that God has always and will always be working powerfully. God has and always will be working powerfully. Think about Abraham. If you're not familiar with your Bible history, I'm going to give you a flyover. Abraham, he called him out. He told him um, that, this is crazy, I know, right? But he told him, I want you to sacrifice your son. And by the way, I'm going to give you a son who's going to have a descendant that, like, saves the whole world. Or, you know, is going to be a savior to the whole world. Um, But I want you to sacrifice your son. And he's thinking contradiction, right? just the fact that he's 100 years old and he's about to have a kid, that's kind of freaking him out, right? Abraham had a lot of faith, but God powerfully produced a child at age 100. And and he powerfully produced a sacrifice in place of his son when when he was called to make a sacrifice. It seemed impossible, but here's God working with his immeasurable power to produce his plan. He worked in Moses. What did he do there? He split open a sea, widened two, right? They had their backs against the wall. You know, Pharaoh's coming after them. This evil Pharaoh is trying to kill all of the, the Jewish people. He's furious. And, and, and they got army on this side. They got an ocean on this side. And God says, ah, we'll just separate that. Why don't you guys walk on through? He even dries up the ground, right? And so they walk on through. And then he closes the water in over the enemy. Immeasurable power, God working to do what? to save his people. He worked through Christ on the cross. Doesn't make any sense why an innocent man would be murdered unjustly and good come out of that. We saw, um, I think it was last year, I think it was, um, uh, and I'm, it's escaping me if it was Louisiana, but 
um, this, this uh, black church had uh, a Bible study and a prayer night, and a white young man comes in. They invite him in, and uh, they say, yeah, come pray with us. Study God's word with us. You're welcome. They, they accepted him in. He spent the entire time with them, like hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever they were there for, praying, studying the Bible, the whole bit. The whole bit. And then at the end, he kills them. He pulls out his guns, and he starts killing all of them, the pastors, the people, all of them. A few, I think one or two survived. Um, and I think, I don't remember if he killed himself. Or I think that's what happened. But re- regardless, he, his whole goal, they find his manifesto afterwards, and his whole goal was to incite racial hate. His goal, stated goal, I want to, and you know what? In some cultures, in some climates, it's exactly what he would have done. But those people who were related to those who died went to, no, he, I guess he didn't die because he went on trial. Uh, they show up at his trial and they're like, we forgive you. How is that happening? How does that happen apart from the work of God working in us, his powerful, powerful work to produce forgiveness, not just of a murderer, but of a murderer of your family member? God's been working. His power will not fail. His purposes are good. He's been working powerfully eternity past, and he will continue to forever. And because of that, we give him glory. When, as as we kind of close here, you know, when I think about trusting God, I wonder sometimes why it's so hard to rely on him if he's that powerful, in a consistent way. Why is this hard? Um, I struggle, as I'm sure most of you do, um, that to trust that he's going to come through in the present and in the future. When I'm, you know, anybody else played the game, I call it the what-if game, where you're like worrying about the thing, and if this happens, then that can happen, and if that happens, then I'm really, you know, in a, in a tough bind. Yeah, everybody playing that game? Okay. I struggle to trust God in the now, but in the end of that scenario, that crazy connect the dot scenario, because I forget what he's already done. And then the fact that he's powerful and his plans are good and all those things. I forget all that, and so I struggle to trust him in the now and in the future. I struggle to believe that he can heal broken relationships in our lives, in my life, or that he'll bring me through very difficult situations that don't make sense to me. You ever, you ever go through something and you're like, you know, you grew up and you hear those scenarios, you're like, well, you got to look for the silver lining, but you're like, I can't find it in this one. Anybody been in that kind of scenario? Yeah, it's like, I'm not figuring this one out. And somehow Paul, still in prison, says, so this is according to God's pr- good plan, his purpose. I think most of us struggle to even believe um, that God could be doing anything good at all inside of those struggles in those moments. And we struggle to get past the pain and just getting our eyes off of the pain that we're experiencing. I think um, others of us, it might be we're struggling to truly believe we're free from the power of those old struggles that God freed us from. And so we keep going back to them. You know, that could be the temper, uh, the, the eating habits, the... Um, insecurities, the anxieties, it could be depressions, you know, it could be um, 
lust. It could be all various things that, you know, we came to Jesus with that baggage, and he freed us from that baggage, but now we're in this life of trying to get away from that baggage and grow in the depth and the height and the length and breadth of the love of God. And so as we're growing, we're still kind of like got one foot in the old. And sometimes when we get maybe two feet back in the old, it kind of feels like, well, maybe God's just not powerful enough to take that issue away from me. Anybody ever struggle with that kind of thought process? I think we struggle to think that God's good and his purposes are good when we go through trials, financial, relational, physical. And so I think there's a sense where we can sit here and we can read that Paul was sent to jail for spreading the gospel of Jesus and say, you know, as we look at him, he was in good spirits and we should be too. We can say that. But I think it's a whole other thing to look someone uh, in the eye who, ju- who just lost a loved one or was mistreated in very, some very heinous way and say, God has a good purpose in this. And he's more powerful than you can think or imagine. And just give him those two verses. Because I don't think we were meant to just give him those two verses. I think we got to look at the first three chapters. I'm not saying, like, go do a Bible study with them when they're hurting it. But I'm, but I'm trying to say, in context, we won't deeply ourselves be able to give away a, a, a believable truth that God is good, and he's got good purposes, and he's more powerful than our scenario if we don't walk through our own trials believing those things. We just won't be able to. We need to know that God is powerful because it gives us confidence that he can bring about good in our struggles. We personally have to believe that. We have to remember that God's purposes are good because it gives us faith to sustain us through it, through the trials we face. So we we need to remember that he's powerful. We need to remember his purposes are good. We need to remember also his spirit is in us. That powerful spirit, it's not just he's powerful over here. He's powerful right here. And we need to remember that he's been working in us the same way he's been working in eternity past and will for eternity forward. Because when we do that, it helps us to know that God loves our specific church. This specific people. He's working in this group of people. He's not just writing to the Ephesians that they would grow in the love of God. He's he's talking to us. And then... Truly, when we can see all of that, then we can praise God. Then we can say what Paul says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, his power, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Cars, this is this is a easy passage to explain. It is a hard passage to apply. If you struggle to praise God, if you are struggling to give God glory in your life, if your first instinct is not to thank and praise and worship the Savior. You're not alone. But I'd urge you, think on the fact that he's giving you his powerful spirit, the same one he's used to to craft amazing turn of events throughout history, and that his purposes are good. Let's pray.
God, by your grace, you saved. You continue to save both us from our, 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 ourselves and, and enslavement to sin and folks who've never known you. You ha- intend to save them and you use us. God, you work mightily and powerfully. And God, we want to see it. We want to see things that are, are akin to separating oceans, to raising the dead uh, back to life. We want to see the miraculous. But God, we, we just need you to open our hearts and our minds to see that you are good. Give us faith in what you've already done and in the future things that we don't yet see. Help us trust you. Help us love you. Help us know your love for us. We pray that you would just um, make our family, make this family one that knows your love deeply in the hard stuff, so much so that those around us can give no, mo- no glory to anyone but you. We pray that in your name.